Welcome everyone. I'm Sue Barber, author, former IT director for a Fortune 500 company, turn executive coach, and this is the Visibility Factor podcast, where we explore how to raise your visibility and play bigger at work and in life. We'll explore key topics and welcome guests that help you shift your thinking about yourself so you can see new possibilities for your leadership. I'm on a mission to create a visibility movement for leaders to show their value and be seen for their true talent. Are you ready to take the next step towards a higher level of visibility for yourself? Let's go. The Visibility Factor podcast is brought to you in part by the 90-Day Visibility Breakthrough Accelerator Program. Do you believe deep down inside that you can have a bigger career, but you don't know how to get there? You can keep doing what you're doing, but what if there is a better way that could accelerate your progress? This 90-day program is a powerful experience that is unique to you and provides dedicated time to focus on your specific challenge. It gives you the time to develop big ideas and plans to execute them, including the tools, resources, and motivation needed for success. Hundreds of clients have used this same program to take them to the next level in their career and to create a better life. Join me in a 90-day experience that focuses on challenges like creating a strategic plan, how to lead an organizational change, or prepare for a career transition. This dedicated time will help you see new possibilities, recognize your strengths, and take away key insights that can be leveraged immediately. Are you ready to create a breakthrough for yourself? If you're interested in learning more, visit susanmbarber.com forward slash visibility breakthrough accelerator for more information and to sign up for the program. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Visibility Factor podcast. This is Sue Barber, your host. I'm fangirling today, everyone. I'm so excited to meet our guest today and spend time with her. Her name is Leanne Davey, and she is the author of a book that I have for anybody who sees the video. It's The Good Fight. And um, I told her when I reached out to her that I, I bought the audiobook first and listened to it. And then I bought the real book because I just needed both to be able to have it. So thank you for joining this show. I'm so excited to have you and I'd love to have you introduce yourself now. Yeah. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much. So yeah, I'm Leanne Davey, author of The Good Fight and also my book before that, You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along and Get Stuff Done. Uh, and I have a consulting firm uh, with my husband called called Three Co's. Three Co's is a bit of a weird name, but it's because of our mission, which is to transform the way people communicate, connect, and contribute so they can achieve amazing things together. So those three co's uh, communicate, connect, <laughs> and contribute. And Love by it. way of background, I'm a, a PhD in organizational psychology. And just my whole purpose in life is to help people to uh, deal with the, the messy stuff to make work uh, a more meaningful <laughs> part of our lives. The stuff that people try to avoid, I think, um, <laughs> yes, exactly. more All than anything stuff. else. Yeah. Right? yeah, exactly. So I love the title, The Good Fight. I just think it's so clever and it helps people start to see, you know, the, the real message I feel like of your book is to help people see conflict is not a bad thing, exactly. but it can be a good and healthy thing. So how did you decide that's where you needed to spend your time on your next book? <laughs> by, by getting it wrong myself. Um, <laughs> I always say, never underestimate my willingness to make mistakes in my own life to serve as a, uh, to be of service to others. So mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I grew up in a family where conflict was uh, 
not our strong suit. Uh, things were not said out loud, particularly my dad did not like conflict and would, you know, nurse a, a, a conversation or a wound from a conversation for decades. Um, and then I got into my first job, my first time as a manager and realized I was really not good at conflict. And so when I wrote you first, there's a chapter, just one chapter in it called Embrace Productive Conflict. But that was what everybody wanted to talk about when I was giving keynotes about mm. the book. The Q&A was about that chapter. Um, when I was working with executive teams, I'm an, a facilitator for executive teams. That's what they were getting wrong was they were not having enough conflict. So it just became clear, okay, I, I know what the next book <laughs> has to be about. <laughs> yeah, it's like a sign from the universe. It was, you, it was many signs. Here's where to spend your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. Mm, so I do a lot of work with teams too, and it, it varies by organization and all those kinds of things, as I'm sure you see too. Yeah. What do you think the major root cause of conflict with teams is in organizations? I'm sure there's way more than one, but like, yeah. is there a major one? Okay, so let's first clarify that I think you're talking about unproductive conflict, unhealthy conflict. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yes, yes, yeah. unhealthy. Yeah. Um, okay, so the unhealthy conflict comes from, well, we're human and we have different styles and different needs. One of the things coming from the organizational psychology background that I understand is that people's needs are often very different from their behavior. So what people are showing us is not what they need in return, which is just crazy and, and very difficult <laughs> to cope with. Um, so, you know, one is just we're humans and that creates a lot of challenges. Another, we are under profound pressure these days. We have leaders who are abdicating their responsibility to prioritize. So we have expectations that we can't live up to. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me to deliver, to meet my targets, I'm dependent on you, but you have different priorities than me. And so you're letting me down. You know, it, it's just, it's really messy. So some of it's just basic fundamentals of any relationships and how humans are very different from one another. But when you layer onto that, this pressure of, you know, needing to deliver more than is humanly possible with, you know, more and more and more consequences for not delivering every year, you know, it's a bit of a powder keg. For sure. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's just crazy how it's so different too in, in different companies. And I'm sure, you know, with people working remotely now, that has also contributed some challenges to some of this as well. I know that you work with global teams and I'm interested to see what you're seeing with that. So, you know, working remote, they're in different parts of the country, the globe, for example, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there's a lack of trust. What are some things you do to help companies and teams come together when they maybe have never met each other, they've only met over Teams or Zoom, and there's cultural differences that kind of fit into some of that as well? You know, the first thing is we spend a lot of time when we're facilitating team effectiveness, we spend a lot of time on the business purpose of the team. So people assume that we necessarily spend a lot of our time on team dynamics and how people are talking to one another. And, and that's not where we start at all. We start with what is the organization counting on you to deliver? How are the things that are changing in the external environment changing what you need to be as a team and what you need to deliver. So we really start there. The second thing we do with every team is we use an assessment tool. We use the Berkman method assessment to give people insight about themselves, 
to give them more empathy about one another and to help them understand that those things that you bump into that are uncomfortable, you should see them and understand them and experience them as this productive tension because they're helping you see the world through different eyes, as opposed to immediately assuming that it's friction. That person's a jerk or they're not smart or they're not doing it right. So we invest a lot of time in that. And I would say the third thing is I've developed a set of exercises to build what we call mutual knowledge. When you're working virtually, um, you are without a lot of contextual information that is very helpful. So imagine that you're all in an office and you work together and you've just come in through a horrible rainstorm and it's cold and wet and dreary and you just had to walk from the parking lot through you know ankle high puddles. When you get into the office, if someone's a little cranky and crusty, you don't even notice that because you're cranky and crusty too. And you know, it's because, oh, it's miserable out there. When you are in a completely different city, a different country, you don't share that context and you don't know what their context is. It might've been a sunny, beautiful day for you. And so you're whistling on the way to work and they come on cranky and crusty and, and you're like, well, you're in a bit of a mood. Um, and we make judgments about one another when we don't have mutual knowledge. So the third thing that we're investing a lot of time doing on virtual teams is using these exercises. And I've posted them. I have nine different exercises. People are free to use with their own teams, um, using those to increase our understanding and awareness of the content text that our team members are in so that we don't rush to judgment in the same way that we normally do. So those are just three things. So starting with really talking about the business purpose of the team, using an assessment tool to reframe what feels like friction into healthy and productive tension, and then really working in every meeting, every week, as frequently as we can on an understanding, having kind of mutual knowledge about where one another are at. Yeah, I would assume even just focusing on those things like you talked about, you just don't think about that, right? That they're not seeing that person and, you know, what they've been through. I always tell people, like, you never know if the children were, like, making the person cranky before they got there. They got in a small car accident. There's so many things that could have happened that has nothing to do with you, but you assume it has everything to do with you. (laughs) Yeah, one of my favorite of the mutual knowledge exercises is called Many Hats. And so all you do is each person has to share one hat that they're wearing that week that others wouldn't know that they're wearing. So, Mm. you know, it could be, uh, I'm wearing my nurse hat today because I got a kid home sick from school. Um, it, it could be, you know, I'm, I'm playing the host because we have a VP in from Tokyo and I'm the one who's supposed to be like showing them around and taking them to lunch. (laughs) And so that exercise is just a great way. And, and then what I like about that exercise is you can share something relatively innocuous and impersonal if you want, or you can share something very profound. Um, But just having a sense of, you know, people are wearing many hats and you probably don't know several of them. And when you do, you just, it's a a form of connection. Uh, It's it's a really wonderful way. And then, you know, you're not as quick to judge. You have a little more context for if they haven't responded to your email in five minutes, (laughs) you know, well, you know, maybe Maybe they're showing the head honcho around. Right, there's probably (laughs) a good reason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Have you ever encountered any senior leaders who just, no matter what you've done, they just refuse to change? Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, 
We have, thankfully, not that many. Sadly, the most common thing I think is people who want to change, who wish they could sustain the change and who they they do change for periods of time and then they revert back. And that's the situation where uh, I love that most of our relationships are long-term relationships with clients. Um, we can give them a little booster shot <laughs> when they need it. Um, but there are a few that I can think of over my career where I think they just weren't interested. I had one recently and he brought us in to work with his team and he was talking this great game about how he wanted his team to be so much more than they were. And it Every single interaction he showed that he was not willing to understand the part he was playing in the dysfunction. Um, he made comments that kind of belittled people who were different than him. It was really demoralizing. And so we actually walked away from that and just said, you know, you're just you know bringing your team together to play this theater of, <laughs> of team effectiveness, they're just going to be getting more cynical every time we get together. So yeah. we're going to stop. So, but thankfully in, um, I don't know what it is, this year's 25 years of working in the space, they're few and far between the ones who, who really just aren't willing. Yeah. Well, congrats on 25 years. That's amazing. Right? <laughs> Crazy. I mean, yeah. It's a lot. It's a, dealing with all that and having yeah. very few that, that don't, you know, get on board, so to yeah. speak, right. Is, that's a that's a small percentage. We do try and vet that beforehand, right? We we do definitely like usually in my business development, my sales calls, I'm usually telling them, you really shouldn't hire us. You shouldn't hire us because, you know, you know, our our advice and our, you know, feedback is most likely to come at you. It's going to be really uncomfortable and you know, everybody's going to see it and we're going to have to call you out. So you probably shouldn't hire us cuz you probably wouldn't enjoy it and and it's good cuz we we do get rid of the odd one, but it's interesting how some of them do understand that I know I'm not going to enjoy it, but I know I need it. So if they can get mm -hmm. through that round of me telling them why they definitely should not hire us, <laughs> usually then they're they're all in. That's a that's a pretty well. Change starts at the top, right? So if an unorthodox uh, sales strategy, yeah, but it but seems yeah. to work. brings them closer to you, right? <laughs> yeah. Now they're curious. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I would love to talk about something that I think a lot of people deal with when they're thinking about conflict, and that's they're either conflict averse or they avoid it altogether. I would love to have you kind of explain the difference between those terms from your perspective and what can people do to start to think about that differently? <laughs> so, oh, it's a really dumb metaphor I use or, or dumb analogy that I use. But <laughs> the, the, when I really understood that there are two different things, there's conflict averse conflict aversion, and there's conflict avoidance. And the way I came to understand it was through relating to how I feel about exercise. Uh, and uh, so many years ago, I, I am a keynote speaker, I'm a facilitator, so I spend a lot of time on my feet. And many years ago now, I was finding that my back was getting sore and, and I couldn't stand comfortably for a long time. And kind of thought, oh, I know what this is. Uh, this is like, I'm just not strong and I'm not fit. And it's really biting me in the bottom. And so uh, <laughs> I decided that I would hire a personal trainer and get serious about it. And I have to tell you, I, I really despise exercise. And that was probably 10 years ago. I still despise exercise. So I always think about <laughs> myself as being like fitness averse. Um, I, I don't like it. My husband runs marathons for fun. He goes out for a 
you know, 22 kilometer run on Sundays to relax. Um, so it's like, <laughs> wow, okay, those people exist. Um, and yeah. so at some point, um, so what my trainer said is what's going to really, really help is, uh, is if you work on your abdominal muscles. So three times a week, he would invent crazy new abdominal exercises so that, you know, when I got so that I could do plank for 30 seconds, it would be 45 seconds. When I got to 45 seconds, he said, oh, well, let's put your arms on this half exercise ball so that, and when I could do that for 60 seconds, he said, let's put one of those kids' little maze toys on the ball so that you have to hold plank while getting the little silver ball into the hole. Oh, like he could invent new things all the time. And so for 10 or 15 minutes, three times a week, I was in agony, but I started noticing that I could stand all day and and be happy to talk to folks after the session. I could stand in line at the amusement park with my kids. I could stand in a bookstore and and browse and read for hours on end. Um, And that's when I kind of realized that I'm probably always going to be fitness averse. (laughs) But as long as I wasn't (laughs) fitness avoidant, then good things happened. And, And it was literally this sort of flash of lightning that I was like, oh, that's true of conflict too. You know, if I'm willing to have three uncomfortable conversations a week, the rest of my life is going to become so much easier, so much more comfortable. So that's what I really sort of understood that you can be conflict averse and I'm not going to try and change you. I probably can't change you if you're conflict averse. Mm -hmm. It's probably hardwired into you, but I'm going to help you not be conflict avoidant. And then you'll see that all sorts of good things happen. So that was how I came through the back door to this epiphany about the difference between (laughs) conflict averse and conflict avoidant and developed strong abs in the process. Uh Good Good for you. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, I think that's an easy concept, though, for people to understand from the fitness perspective, because I'm sure there's plenty. uh, I'm probably one of them as well, who, um, you know, struggles with that a bit because there's just a lot of things going on in your day. And it's like, oh, I can put that off. I would love for you to also talk about conflict debt. (gasps) Oh, fun. I think that is a really cool concept. And I would love for you to share that with everyone, too. Yeah. So I was looking for a way to help people realize that there is something worse than having conflict, which is not having conflict. And and so conflict debt became this way of drawing a parallel to credit card debt. And we kind of understand that when there's things we want, um, but we can't afford them, and we just put it on our credit card and tell ourselves that we'll pay it off right away, honest, I'll I'll start making payments. But we don't, and the interest compounds, and we often have to pay penalties, and, and we end up paying much, much, much more for that thing we wanted than we would have needed to if we'd paid for it in cash. Well, same happens with conflict debt. You think, oh, that person, the way they just treated me in the meeting this morning, I I really should say something, but oh, I don't have the energy for that today. Or, you know, I don't, I think there's some risks in that person's plan, but we can't afford to slow down. We got to get this moving. So we get into conflict debt. Uh, We say, not now, later. And the interest and penalties that pile up in resentment, in Sunday scaries and stress, in diluting our resources over too many projects when we wouldn't have the fight about trade-offs to make, all manner of things that happen um, that affect our productivity, our innovation, our risk mitigation, our engagement, our trust, our stress, really at every level. 
um, it is more costly to get into conflict debt than to just have the conflict with a much higher frequency more often. So the other metaphor that might be helpful if if you can't resonate with the sort of credit card debt kind of ideas, I always say what you really want is to have conflict much more like flossing and less like root canal. So (laughs) this is another thing. I I have all my epiphanies through the back door, I have to tell you. So, um, you know, I had a run-in with a dentist when I was a little kid and, and a dentist hit me and it was very awful and it created this real fear of dentists. And so in my 20s, when my mother wasn't there to force me to go to the dentist, I stopped going to the dentist. And of course, what happens when you stop going to the dentist is your visit when you eventually have to go to the dentist is very painful and very aversive. And so at some point I smartened up and realized that if I don't like the dentist, I should go every six months. I should floss my teeth every day. uh, And those hygienist (laughs) appointments aren't too bad um, when you do that. And I thought, you know, the same is true with conflict. If we don't like conflict and we try and pick our battles or bite our tongues or whatever we're doing to put it off and put it off. When it finally erupts, it tends to be very emotional, very aversive. It it does, you know, stop a project in, in midstream and it's very costly. Whereas if we just said, hey, you know, in that meeting this morning, I, I'm not sure that, that didn't land well with me. Can we just talk it over? If we just treat conflict like flossing, then we don't have to have root canals. So that was the other way that helped me think about if you don't like conflict, you want to have it much more frequently um, and much lower impact. So treat treat productive conflict like flossing so that you don't have to have the root canal. <laughs> that's amazing because, you know, they say flossing makes you healthier, right? So I think that's the yes. same concept, right? Same concept. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because I we used to be told, uh, don't like for feedback, for example, don't wait and let it have a birthday, right? Don't wait yes. until mid, you know, like mid-year or end of performance review, because that's what it was like. Nobody would give feedback until that time, and that's like, what meeting are you talking about? All that one four months ago. Well, you know, I compare it to a kid with a toy. You can't tell them no and say, you know, that was a week ago. Don't do that again. I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're what? talking about. Right? What? Yeah, what toy. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. So on your website, you have a list of all these bosses, all the types of bosses and all the challenging bosses that probably everyone would recognize. It's getting longer and longer. I bet, I bet. (laughs) I'm sure it's creating new ones every day. So is there an example we could walk through? So like, let's just say, I just picked one here. Um, Someone who, we talked a little bit about insecurity, but an insecure leader who maybe has never led people before and is now in charge of a team and is all these Mm -hmm. new responsibilities, but maybe isn't handling that well. What are some things that, you know, their team could do and or that leader could start to do for themselves to think about that differently? Yeah. So first of all, just that mindset is the first thing, right? Be kind. Somebody's a new manager. It's a hard job. It it Mm -hmm. is not easy. So just starting with, hey, they're new. They're going to figure stuff out. Um, And if I can help them figure it out more quickly, that's a good thing. Um, with your insecure manager, I think it's asking a lot of questions and asking them to answer questions that are the what, the why, the who questions so that you're understanding the context behind what they're asking you to do. And when you when you ask somebody, okay, tell me 
where this fits in with other priorities. If your new manager doesn't have an answer to that, you've framed it in a way that they can go find an answer, which is helping them to be successful. It's probably positioning Mm -hmm. something that they can ask of their manager and, and look smart and look on the ball for doing it. Um, the other thing you want to do is, you know, sometimes an insecure manager becomes a micromanager and they they are secure about doing the actual frontline job. Um, and so in that case, what you want to help them do is to, to not meddle in how you do something. So we always say great managers answer the what, the why, and the whom questions. They don't answer the how questions for you. So if you have an insecure manager kind of rolling up their sleeves and getting into your job, kind of like, I don't know, like coming into your territory, stepping on your toes, um, you want to use redirect questions to help them understand that the most valuable things they could do is help you understand the why and the what and the and, um, and the who mm-hmm. instead of. Uh, needing to answer the how questions. Um, other things about insecure managers is you want to build bridges out to other people in the organization because an insecure manager often behaves really poorly in response to high performance. Um, so they feel threatened by that. They feel like you are trying to usurp them. And so it is important to, if you have a former manager that you can go for coffee with every once in a while, those sorts of things are, are useful. Getting involved in it may be a cross-functional project team that gives you a link to a different manager, but it also might be, you know, some kind of diversity committee or charitable um, mm-hmm. activity. Um, those things are really important as well. Um, and then definitely seek support because your insecure manager is not going to be able to give you psychosocial support because they're so busy kind of trying to cope themselves. So make sure you're investing in your resilience. Make sure you have friends and downtime and play and joy in your life because working for an insecure manager can suck it right out of you. So, so you, you need to plug in, charge your batteries uh, with some of those things. Mm-hmm. So anybody who has any type of manager that is uh, more of a challenge, check out Leanne's website and I'll have it in the notes, but I was just fascinated. <laughs> yeah, we got lazy and flip-flopping and double standards and uh, yeah, we got them all. We got <laughs> lots and lots. And if you have yeah. one, she doesn't have you can add it <laughs> I know I think I haven't officially done one on the micromanager I, I did oh. one uh, recently I was doing a series I did a whole month on how to manage up effectively and I had a little subsection on how do you manage up a micromanager but I realized in my terrible bosses series I think I have like 11 different bad bosses and not the micromanager so I gotta go back and do that one for sure <laughs> yeah add that one to the list definitely. for sure I'm sure everyone I've definitely had those myself oh, so yes. I understand uh So you have a couple tools in the book that I think are fascinating, and I'm really (laughs) excited to talk about these. One of them is called the U-Tool, I believe you call it. So can you share a little bit about the U-Tool? Maybe you might have to... Yeah, we describe can describe it for people. Well, so one of the good things about. <laughs> about it having a terrible, terrible name um, is that at least it's descriptive. Um, so the U tool looks like the letter U. Um, and so, uh, you know, what the U tool helps us do is understand what our unique value is 
how that value fits in with the leaders above us and the people beneath us in an organization. Um, so that's why it has different layers in it. And then the second thing it helps us do, if you picture the left side and the right side of a U, it helps us understand what value we need to add so that the left side of the U, start drawing the U from the top left and it goes down. So you come down through the layers of an organization. Uh, then at the bottom, that's where work is drafted and edited. And then as you come up the right side of the U, that's where we um, review, monitor, govern, course correct uh, work. So this is a tool that allows us to say, look, this is what our unique value is as a team or as an individual. This is what everybody's counting on me to do. That's the first question. The second question you answer is, what do I need from above me? What decisions need to be made? What context or clarity do I need from above me so that I can add the value I need to add? So maybe it's, what's my budget for this? Um, what would good look like? Who are my stakeholders? Those sorts of things you might need from above. And then the next question is, and what's the value where I need to get out of the way and not be a micromanager? What are the things I'm counting on the layer beneath me to do in terms of adding value? So uh, I may be, if I'm a leader, I may be envisioning, I need the process to do this and this and this, but I'm not actually designing the system because I'm not an expert. So I may expect the layer beneath me to design it and then the layer beneath them to build it. So the you just really helps us to be clear on what we can expect from one another, what good looks like, uh, where we need to put our most of our attention. So it really, the reason it's in a book about conflict is that the vast majority of conflicts come because we didn't have aligned expectations. Um, we thought we were doing what we needed to do, but it, it wasn't on target. And that creates um, really unhealthy friction and something we don't need. So the U is a tool you can use. And in The Good Fight, there's all the instructions. You don't need to hire somebody. You, like you can literally just look at chapter seven and the appendix and it gives you all the instructions to do it with your team. So that's the U. It, every time people do, I have, I have a client who um, I, I first met her here in Toronto and then she's moved to a very big global job in the US. And she just emailed me one day. She's like, I need you to come in and you my team. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll, we'll meet in Florida. And, and we'll, because once you understand the power of the you in helping you, you know, add more value proactively, stay focused at the right level, not get into the weeds. When you understand that, then you want it for every team. So she was like, come on, we need, I need you to come in. And, you, and I'm like, wow, we've, we've verbed it. We've, we've uh, yeah. So I, I went in and you'd her team. Yeah. It's, it's become a verb. <laughs> I love that. Yes. And I think you use the word systematize in the book, you know, and I think that's a great way to think about it because most people don't think about the process yeah. and how everything's going to work in advance, right? They wait until there's a crisis and things aren't working and then they may consider systematizing it and they may not. In the speed, they just... Yeah, they jump in and they kind of fix the problem, but not in a way that's going to stop it from happening again. Yeah, they don't solve the root cause. The other cool tool you have in your book is the TARP. <laughs> so 
so slightly better name. Sh- slightly better. It sh- it could, yeah. Well, I think they need the visual, the tarp, too, yes. so they understand what that means. Okay. So where the tarp comes from is uh, I used to go on a rant all the time about how all of our language and metaphor of teamwork seems to revolve around rowers for some reason. I have no reason. I, I do not understand. But we have posters of rowers. People put the rowers on the front of their annual report. We use terms like <laughs> we're all in the same boat and don't rock the boat and we're all pulling in the same direction. We're supposed to be pulling in the same direction. And I'm like, okay, how are we going to ever ask people to have productive conflict if everything we tell them and show them says that team players pull in the same direction? So I was in search of a a story, a metaphor, an image that would um, convey a different message. And it came to me after going on a camping trip with my family where we got caught in a giant rainstorm and had to buy this plastic tarpaulin to try and protect our tent from the rain. And so there were four of us, my husband, myself, and our two daughters who were quite young at the time. And we had to spread this tarp out, pull it really tightly so the rain would roll off of it, and then kind of get it on the right angle because the wind was blowing the rain in on, on quite a uh, quite an angle. So um, we're, we're doing this and we're pulling and my husband ends up pulling way too hard and pulling the whole tarp kind of off center and leaving our five-year-old face down in the mud. Um, and then, oh, it was just nasty. And so when I finally got her cleaned up and calmed down, by that point, the nine-year-old decides she's had enough and she, <laughs> she lets go of her rope while the other three of us are pulling. And so the, her corner of the tarp comes flying up and the tent is getting soaked. And and all of a sudden, I realized that this is more uh, the right metaphor and the right image of teamwork. When we're a team, we have scarce resources. The plastic tarp is never big enough. Um, And we're not pulling in the same direction. We're really pulling in different directions. We have different expertise. We have different stakeholders, different things we're trying to accomplish. Um, We're pulling in different directions with the goal of kind of making our scarce resources go as far as possible. um, And also making sure that based on what's happening in our environment, that we've kind of optimized the decision based on which way the wind is blowing. And so this has become an exercise where we talk about Um, you know, who are the members of a team who are deliberating on something? We talk about them as the rope holders. Who owns the tarp? Who's the one to decide this is in the right spot and this is centered? And who's responsible for all the people who are going to sleep in the tent, your shareholders, your customers, (laughs) your vendors? And there are so many ways that this tarp exercise and, and the story and the metaphor really extends. So I published the exercise, not the story, in Harvard Business Review to help people be able to do this with their teams. And the the simple way to do it is to just say, answer three questions for each role. What's the unique value that that role brings? What are they paying attention to? What's their expertise? That's question one. Question two, who that's not in the room uh, is that uh, role advocating for, fighting for? And third question, what's the tension that they then are obliged to put on deliberations? And when you go around and you answer these three questions, we go back to systematizing, you systematize productive conflict. You improve empathy. You have everyone understanding that, oh, when the operations guy is really not happy about something the sales guy is trying to sell, it's not because he's a jerk and he doesn't want the salesperson to meet 
need is numbers. It's because that particular sale is going to be really inefficient. It's going to cause a lot of scrap. It's not going to, right? And, and vice versa, you know, the sales guy realizing it's not that the head of operations is the VP of business prevention, as they sometimes joke, but instead that it's just, oh, okay, I'm selling something that's going to require you know, a more costly mode of production or so when we understand and empathize, uh, then we can make better decisions. We, we optimize instead of compromising. Um, and, and that is a path to much, much better conflict. So the TARP is, again, it's in the book, chapter eight uh, and appendix two, take you through all of the instructions to run the TARP exercise with your team. Um, and it, really changes things. You know, I've had people years later who say, you know, I still, we still use that language. Um, It really helps me viscerally understand that it's supposed to feel a little uncomfortable uh, if we're having healthy deliberations, because there is a lot of tension on me. People are pulling in different directions and and that's how we know we're doing it right as opposed to a sign that we're doing it wrong. I love that because you also have to not stay exactly where you are to keep moving forward, right? You have to change, you have to... Exactly. Yeah, so that's so, so helpful. I love that. Uh, the last, I believe it's the last chapter of your book is about conflict at home. Yeah. I'm curious, yes. what kind of feedback have you gotten from people <laughs> when they read that chapter? Oh, well, you know, first people were like, your husband let you write about being in marriage therapy? I was like, yeah, he's a good guy. Like the therapy worked Um, uh, and (laughs) we've been, I guess, together 30 years this year. So um, yeah, because when you're not good at conflict, which neither he nor I were, um, you get into bad conflict debt and that conflict debt landed us in a psychologist's office. And so I wrote the draft of the chapter and, uh, and I showed it to him. I said, are you okay with me, with me sharing this? And he said, yeah, which was amazing. Um, it's also a big section on how to raise conflict resilient children. And I get a lot of people who kind of sheepishly admit that they are protecting their kids from the feedback that would make them stronger. They are creating this false esteem in their children that will shatter when they're not there to jump in front of the bullets for them. Um, so that yeah. section um, does create great conversations. And then the final section is um, is about all the crap we put up with in unhealthy conflict in volunteer and church groups and oh, at yeah. synagogue. And, and um, I remember having a great conversation with a woman who was very famous in the U.S. for being a whistleblower in one of the most famous corporate scandals there was. And so we were on a panel together talking about healthy conflict. And at the end, she came up to me and she said, um, I'd love some help with the situation I'm facing at my church. And I thought, oh my goodness, you can be a whistleblower in one of the most massive corporate scandals against these CEOs and 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 you're afraid of the ladies at the church? And the answer was yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, crazy. Yeah. So I'm really proud of that chapter. It, it was important to me to say, and, and I called it um, try this at home, because if you think about all those funny car commercials, when it says, do not try this at home, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. the first nine chapters are about using conflict for good in the workplace. But I really didn't want to leave the book without saying that everything in there also helps us to have better relationships, to raise stronger children, to have healthier organizations and, and relationships in our community. So I had a lot of fun writing that chapter. Yeah, I think it's, and I think you raised some important points that I talked to someone yesterday, is that if we don't prepare them for the work world, 
they're not going to be successful, right? They don't know how to have conversations. They don't know how to deal with, you know, everybody's gotten the trophy. And so they don't know how to deal with a situation where they may not get the job, right? They may not be the person that's chosen. So I do think that chapter is great. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I always say it dates me because it goes back to old American Idol. But I always say like kids are being raised by Paula Abdul these days and then they go work for Simon Cowell and they are not ready. Like that, that is not a good thing. Okay, so we're going to transition into the four questions that I ask every guest. It's called the Rise Up and Be Visible Quick Tips. So I know you can do this. <laughs> it, feel, it feels like a bell ringer exam in, oh, in no, uh, biology. Not okay, Not at all. I hope you don't feel that way at all. Okay, first okay. question. Visibility is fill in the blank and then tell me why you think that's true. Visibility is um, not in the eye of the beholder. So what I think is that there's a lot of people who feel like I see you, but it's not about that. It's does the other person feel seen? And it takes something much more profound to be able to say, I feel seen than it does to just say, oh, I see you. Uh, When people say, uh, you know, I understand. I'm like, No, you probably don't, right? So visibility is not in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Visibility is really the true test of visibility is do I feel seen? Mm -hmm. I love that. What are you doing to be visible? (laughs) That just feels embarrassing because the answer is like, what what am I not doing? I feel like I (laughs) shove my face in front of people far too many times a week. But I think the most (laughs) profound answer, so I really encourage folks to, uh, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, because that's probably where I'm making the greatest effort to truly be visible, but to be visible in a way. So if anybody's seen my LinkedIn feed, they will know I post the most ridiculous, uh, raw, Um, embarrassing photos along with my work to say that I'm okay with being seen, being seen, you know, with no makeup on, being seen. I always say that the number of views I get on a LinkedIn post is correlated to how many chins I'm showing in the picture. So... Like, um, so I think what I'm doing to be visible, uh, you know, I have a website, I give keynote speeches, I have a YouTube channel that I'm really proud of. I'm on LinkedIn, but it's not just that I'm out there. It's that I actually am willing to be seen authentically, um, to, to share the things I mess up as I have done today, you know, all the things I get wrong. So I think that's how I am trying to be visible, but, but visible in a way that is a little bit deeper than surface level. But I think that's what people connect with you on, right? They can see (laughs) the authenticity of you, the real talk, even the way you started your book, like, hi, I'm Leanne. Like you're just very much conversational Leanne, right? You're not just some person up on the stage somewhere all the time, right? You're a real person and real challenges, right? So I think that's amazing. Many. (laughs) <laughs> Many. Yeah, I think we all do. Many. <laughs> uh, next question. What's the best career or leadership advice you've ever received? Oh, you can't have it all. You just can't have it all on Tuesday. So my mentor, Terry Brown, I, I love this. So so she was a real woman pioneer um, and, you know, really was a, a working career mom, um, 
long before lots of other people were. And she she would just pshaw at anybody who would tell her that she couldn't have it all or tried to tell me that I couldn't have it all. She's like, ah, you can have it all. You can't have it all on Tuesday. And, <laughs> and it was just a really great reminder that she encouraged me, don't think about work-life balance like every single day. Like, did I balance it today? Did I do enough as a as an employee today? Did I do enough as a parent today or a spouse or a friend? She was like, ah, you're not going to get the balance right on Tuesday. You, you know, sometimes you have to count it over a week, sometimes a month, sometimes a year. And, and what she's taught me now at a late stage in her career um, is, and, and you know what, you're going to have a different work-life balance in your thirties when you got young kids, then you can, mm-hmm. uh, I'm 51 and I'm a year away from being an empty nester. Uh, you know, I will probably soon be throwing myself into some work things that I chose not to prioritize when, uh, when I had kids at home. So, um, you can have it all. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Just don't expect to have it all on Tuesday. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> and then the last question, what is a book that you've read recently that you would recommend? Oh, so uh, this is a good one. So my my dear friend, Laura Gassner-Otting has a new book just out called Wonder Hell. And I just think Wonder Ooh. Hell is the best. So, so she wrote a book called Limitless. It's another great book. And um, it got discovered by Robin Roberts on Good Morning America. And Robin actually, from her personal Twitter account, kind of did the whole, y'all got to read this book. And, um, and, and Laura unlocked this level of success that at first was wonderful. Like, wow, must be amazing to get that kind of notoriety and sell that many books. And, and then all of a sudden it was the hell, which is like, what, what am I capable of? Should I be more ambitious? Do I need to do more with this? And so Wonder Hell is about that moment at the top of the roller coaster where you're both, you know, loving the hill you've climbed, but also thinking about, you know, can I climb any further? Am I about to go, you know, roaring downward? (laughs) Uh, um, And so, you know, as you're thinking about new ways of thinking about success, if success hasn't been as much of a boon for you as you thought it would be, um, I think Wonder Hell is just an amazing book to, to really play with these ideas and and so highly recommend. Oh, I love it. I have not heard of that. So yay. Did it it's just come? Brand spanking it's brand new. new. Okay. Well, that's right. I love it. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> well, I loved our conversation today. I'm so, so glad we were c- connected. Um, I'm glad you knew a bunch of people that I know and we were able to make this work today. Uh, get Leanne's book. I'm telling you, it will change your life. I really... I was so excited. I had time in the car to listen to it and to hear your voice, right? And now meet you in person. It's uh, everybody says it sounds it's just like you. You just sounds like you. Yeah, just like you for sure, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you are true authenticity in action, and I think it just helps everybody start to look at conflict from a much better, healthier way, and that can only help everybody in their lives, whether at home or at work. And I love the work that you're doing. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Sue. I really, really have had a great conversation. And thanks for the chance to uh, to share this message that some things are worth fighting for. I will include all the links for everything that Leanne's done and all the information that she shared today and the book that you recommended. And I hope everybody takes advantage of connecting with you on LinkedIn because I've seen your stuff and it's great. And your YouTube channel is great as well. <laughs> they can see all my chins, <laughs> all my chins. The YouTube channel is great too. So if you're looking for something, you can definitely learn from her there. 
Thanks everybody for joining today on the Visibility Factor podcast, and I'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to the Visibility Factor podcast. Remember that visibility starts with small steps that are intentional and consistent each day. Be bold, be visible, be the leader you were meant to be. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all of our social media platforms, which are highlighted in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Visibility Factor podcast.